Hi, you guys, and welcome to another episode of On the Slab, the film podcast where we watch movies and then we take them apart to see how they tick. This week's episode is Spider-Man Homecoming, the Marvel movie that just came out in theaters. Silvio and I saw it this week, and basically we were so excited by what we saw that we decided to make this week's episode about it. So I hope that you guys are prepared for an adventure into just absolute geekiness and nerddom, um, because we have lots of thoughts about Spider-Man Homecoming. So now, without further ado, here's our take. Ladies, gentlemen, morticians, welcome to the morgue. We have a new film on this lab tonight. Now we begin. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to On This Lab, the movie podcast where we dissect a movie, see what makes it tick. I'm Silvio Emery. And I'm Annie Neller. Hi, you guys. And uh, this week, we're looking at Spider-Man Homecoming, the 2017 action superhero extravaganza. So, let's talk a little bit about context here. Time of death. I'm... I'd say I'm a Spider-Man fan. I I like Spider-Man, but I'm not really a fan in so much that I don't really follow the media. But... I enjoy Spider-Man. He's one of my one of the heroes I like that I don't really read a lot of. But whenever I do pick up a trade or whatever of him, I enjoy his stuff. And I actually really enjoy him whenever he's in like an animated TV show. Even the goofy hmm. old you know sixty 90s Spider is it nineties or sixty? I think there's two different series. But like the, I think there the are. old one with all the animation errors. Spider-Man. Yeah. Spider. Yeah, that one. I love <laughs> the, it. It's the it's, awesome one. It's just completely yeah. goofy and whatever. So it that's is. kind of where it's I crazy. and. Annie, I, I'm the one who got you to see this one. and You did get me to see this. No. <laughs> Somehow. So, what I... I was kind of meh on this until uh, Spider-Man showed up in The Avengers. He was pretty good in that. And then, you know, I, I got excited once I saw the Vulture design. Because once the Vulture came into the picture, I'm just like, ah, oh, he's a Scooby-Doo villain. Because that's what the old Vulture is. He's a bald man with a wingsuit. I think there's literally a guy in the Scooby-Doo movie who is that. Like, he escapes with the thing. Yeah, the pterodactyl guy. <laughs> I'm pretty for sure there is. Yeah, there's, he's like he, a bird man. Yeah, and he's green as well. So, like, that was ridiculous. But when I saw the design and he had, like, that military helmet with the green eyes, I was like, okay, this is going to be good. So, uh, so I was kind of expecting good things. And then the reviews started coming in. It was great. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm going to see this. Annie, what about you? How, how did you come into this? Um, so I'm actually not such a huge fan of the Spider-Man movies, mainly because there's been too many remakes for my taste. I don't know. Tobey Maguire was pretty okay for me in the first few movies. Um, I never read as many of the Spider-Man comics as I know some other people did. I was more of like a, an Iron Man, Guardians of the Galaxy fan, um, that type of stuff. So, and I also saw the trailer... Um, and I saw Tom Holland in Civil War, and I was kind of like, okay, so they're trying to revamp this again, like, ugh, this could be, this is gonna go one of two ways, either they have actually done this right, or they've really fucked it up. Uh, because that's basically what we've seen in the past two films with Emma Stone and, um, who is the guy playing Spider-Man again? Uh, that was, (laughs) shit, hold up. Andrew something? Garfield. Garfield, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really sad. Sorry, Andrew Garfield. Um, so I wasn't necessarily as excited to see it because I I just didn't know how it was going to go. 
but you got me to see it because you texted me after you saw it, and you were like, oh my gosh, why are you not going to see Spider-Man right now? We need to talk about this. So, yeah, that was kind of my context. Yeah. Um, so, I guess before I said anything, you weren't expecting it to be very good? No, I wasn't. Again, too many remakes in too short of a period of time. I just had left a bad taste in my mouth, and I was kind of, like, not really ready for it. So, okay. um, yeah. So, of, of the ones you have seen before this, like, which one's, which one's your favorite? Let's just go with that. Um, gee. You know, I'm going to go with the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire. I don't know that I really fully liked any of them after that. Maybe the one with Doc Ock. Yeah, I'd put Spider-Man 2 as my favorite. A little bit less time on the origin story. Yeah. Yeah, but I feel like that's been the focus of most of the Spider-Man films is the origin story. So that was another thing that I was afraid of. Like, are they going to kickstart this again? And is this going to be just like everybody's uncle is dying in the first 10 minutes? My uncle! <laughs> Uncle Ben, come back. Okay. Um, so I think <laughs> it's time people. for our summary. Time yeah. of no preliminary examination. God fucking damn it. <laughs> preliminary examination. Okay, so Silvio, since um <laughs> since in our last take I tried to summarize this movie and I could legitimately could not do it. Um can you go ahead and give us a short summary? What happens in Spider-Man? And don't leave out the spoilers. Okay, yeah. By the way, guys, spoilers. This is your last warning. Turn back now. Okay, we're done here. Um, so, our movie <laughs> opens on Michael Keaton as Adrian Toomes looking at... And by the way, this is a nice thing that kind of informs things for the second viewing. Is a picture his daughter drew of the Avengers. Yeah? You didn't catch that. Oh my gosh. Because, you know, they're talking about how the world is changing and like, you know, we've got these costume freaks going around and he's this blue collar worker running this kind of construction teardown crew and they've got a big contract to clear up the Chitauri invasion of New York. Now, this happens and this is going well. They're going to make a lot of money. He's showing this skill with it where he's like, no, no, you can't cut this. You got to use their stuff, their stuff. You know, it's a hardness scale thing. And then the Department of Damage Control which is co-run by Tony Stark, comes in and says, no, no, we're taking care of this now, which kicks him out of a lot of capital to be invested into this big contract, and he's kind of out on his ass. Cut to eight years later, and he has taken some of the salvage that they had left, you know, the Chitauri crystals and this and that, and turned that into a cod like a cache of weapons and technology that he's been using to steal more and create this kind of underground black market arms dealing business. And, you know, things are going well, they're making money. So, ba -ba 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 -da -ba, we cut to Spider-Man and we don't cut to him in the traditional sense that we don't just go in media res, but we get this little like iPhone video montage of Peter's adventures in Berlin. So, you know, He's picked up at the thing. He's talking to Happy. And he's just being an obnoxious little shit about it. And it's really adorable. But he's like, hey, this is Happy. He's going to... You know, you can't film that, right? And just, well, whatever. Why are you doing that voice? It's fun, okay? So they get that whole thing. And then Tony Stark says, all right, you know what? 
You can keep the suit, stay low to the ground, just be safe and be responsible. And then we kind of get to this point where we're going through a typical day for Peter Parker. And he is like on the edge of his seat the entire time. He's in school. Everything in his life revolves around Spider-Man. In, in chemistry class, he's, you know, mixing up new varieties of web fluid. He's just, he's always watching the clock. He's always texting happy and saying, all right, I'm ready for duty now and so on. And he calls it to his friends and teachers, he calls it the Stark Internship. And what it comes down to is he is spending every day after school, like five hours after school, patrolling and stopping petty crime and just really putting himself heart and soul into being Spider-Man. And he has this frustration where he wants to be an Avenger. He thinks this is his path forwards and he's kind of sacrificing everything else to it. He has a crush on this girl named Liz. He has a best friend named Ned, who's this, you know, kind of larger Asian kid. And, you know, they're nerds together. And this starts to turn things around when uh, Peter sneaks back into his room after losing his backpack. Because what he likes to do, and I think it's a cool little trick, is, you know, he'll throw his backpack up against the wall and then sling a web at it to secure it in place. But he does it yeah, to his and loses his backpack. So, uh, he sneaks back home in his costume, closes his door, and, oh, look who's behind him. It's Ned. Now, Ned's kind of the impetus of change here, because Ned's like, oh my god, you're Spider-Man, this is so cool, oh my god! And initially, Ned is the irresponsible one. He's like, oh, dude, you're Spider-Man, you should tell everyone, you know, like, you, you can be cool. Because, you know, they're adolescents, they're worried about that kind of thing. Meanwhile, Peter Parker's, you know, no, no, this is serious, I'm, I'm an Avenger, I can't... Do that. And there's this fun little wordplay where it's like, so you're an Avenger? Kind of? Yeah, basically. And things go on. Now, Ned's kind of just being the obtrusive sidekick. He's getting Peter into a bit of social trouble by blabbing in inadvertent ways. It's like, Peter, no, Spider-Man! No, uh not supposed to talk about Get that awkward thing going. But what it comes down to is there is a robbery in ATM after a day of basically really mundane hero work you know he gets a churro he gives a little lady directions he stops a bike thief he gets yelled at you know just really small time stuff that's the kind of his frustration and he sees a bunch of guys robbing an atm in avengers mass and they have these crazy sci-fi weaponry they have like this laser cutter and what's basically the gravity gun from half-life and he fights them off uh the Laser gets cranked up to fire and takes out this little bodega slash deli that he used to get his sandwiches at. And, you know, he rescues the guy. They get away. And he's reporting all this stuff to, you know, Happy and to Tony. And he's not getting any feedback from them. So he's kind of trying to chase them down. So. Da, 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 da. He traces he chases them down. Uh, and he starts interfering with them. They're, he's... Ned invite get uh, Ned's outburst gets him invited to a party on the premise that hey you know Spider Man has Spider Man drop by, mm -hmm. uh, he goes to the party dresses up as Spider Man he's ready to drop in and he's deciding I think at this point to turn away when he hears a blast in the distance there's this blue fire he investigates that and finds two members of Tomb's gang selling weapons to Aaron Davis played by Donald Glover who's kind of a small time criminal and it's a great little sequence it's like all right uh, we got the anti gravity gun we got. This thing, this is an Ultron arm straight out of Slovakia. And it's like, 
Yeah, um, I'm just trying to hold guys up. I don't need to, like, blow them to kingdom come. Uh, at which point he gets a phone call from Ned, basically saying, like, hey, what's going on? Which alerts them. They pull guns on each other. He drops down, hey, if you're going to shoot anyone, shoot me. He goes on this chase through the suburbs, which is really great because there's no high buildings for him to sling from, so he's kind of doing more of a parkour kind of thing. Yeah. Actually causing a lot of property damage. He goes, there's this great shot that I love where he swings from a tree and he pulls a treehouse out of it. It's great. <laughs> that was awesome. No. Yeah, I love that. So sequence. he chases them down. They drop one of the weapons. They manage to make it back. But now, before they do that, uh, they call Tombs, who shows up in his vulture suit, plucks Spider-Man mid-jump, drops him in the Hudson. And that's actually a really scary sequence because there's an altitude check on his suit, which you know Tony Stark gave him. And so it pulls a parachute, but not while he's falling, while he's going up in the air. So as he falls, he gets tangled in it. He can't get out of it. Iron Man comes in, pulls him out of the water. Spider-Man has a conversation with him. He's like, you know, kid, you know, what part of stay small didn't you get? You know, stay close to the ground. Be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And Peter Parker says, I'm ready for more. I can do better. Like, these guys, they got this thing that's going on. And then we reveal that Iron Man isn't even there. Tony Stark's actually in, I believe, India at some kind of party he's operating it remotely and so he just says you know chill the fuck out peter immediately doesn't listen they investigate <laughs> the, the they investigate the little chitari crystal they got uh which the bad guys are tracking meanwhile tombs comes back gets angry at his guys one of the guys the guy who was really gung-ho about pushing the merchandise he's the shocker uh, he's got like this big electric glove that punches real good and he's like, you know what? Screw it. I'm out of here. You... And he, he vaguely threatens the operation. He says, like, oh, really? Can you afford to have me out there, knowing what I know? At which point, Toom says, is that thing ready? Yep. Grabs a gun off the tinkerer's bench and fires at him, which incinerates him instantly. And I thought that was the anti-gravity gun. No, that's, that's that thing. Ah. Okay. Oops. So... <laughs> And there's this great shot that I want to call out where he picks up the big glove, shakes it off, shakes the dust out of it, hands it to another guy and says, guess you're the shocker now. And I just love the physical comedy of just like dusting off. I was like, yeah, it's still good. <laughs> no. So they're scaling up their operation. Spider-Man's tracking them down. Two of them show up at the school trying to trace the radiation of the weapon they lost. Peter tags them with the tracker. And... Their headquarters, as it turns out, is in Maryland. So Peter figures, eh, you know that ac academic decathlon that I've been neglecting for the Stark internship? I guess I'll go anyways and go to D.C. and use it as an excuse to try and get in on this. Which, you know, uh, works out because Peter's the smartest guy in the room, so you don't know, you're on. Which, you know, bumps Flash back up to reserve. They go to the decathlon, Peter... Traces some guys down by the tracker and finds them and finds a shipment of trucks carrying, uh, you know, alien technology, that kind of stuff. Just Department of Damage Control stuff. Uh, he intercepts the vulture, grabs the stuff, foils the operation, but gets trapped inside the truck. At which point, and it's a great sequence because I love how this plays in, but he falls the way they open things is they have these little cubes that open like a phase shift in the material of whatever they're attached to and make yeah, a window. that was cool. So 
Spider-Man falls down into it as the cubes are being disrupted. Toombs gets away, and as he hits the ground, he doesn't look, and he jumps, and he hits his head on the ceiling, knocking him out. He wakes up in the morning, he's inside the crate, he doesn't know where they are, he thinks he's been kidnapped by the guys, he thinks they took the entire truck. He burst out, and he's stuck in the... Depart he's stuck in the Department of Damage Control's uh, vault, basically. And so, you know, eh, it's a non-time lock, whatever, I don't care. He spends some time meeting his suit lady, played by Jennifer Connelly, I didn't know. Uh, Annie pointed that out for me. Yeah, I told you that, and you were like, oh my god! I knew her voice sounded nice. So, you know, he's <laughs> practicing actually learning what his suit can do. Because there was a big comedy sequence as he was trying to bust that, where the suit was talking to him, They took off he took off the tracker that Tony... Stark put on and also activated a bunch of protocols that were locked behind training wheels. So, you know, there was rapid fire webs, taser webs, split webs, and everything was just not working the way he was used to. And I want to point out a gag. It's like, you know, all right, so let's, let's, let's take these guys out. Activating instant kill. No, no instant kill. No. That's great. <laughs> so he's kind of lazing around, playing with things, you know, just jerking around. And, you know, he talks about his feelings for Liz and all this. And eventually he's like, so how long have we been here? 37 minutes. Oh, come on, I gotta get out of here. And he looks around in the crate that he busted out of to see what he can find that maybe help him. At which point, uh, the he finds another one of those Chitauri crystals. Which the suit lady, now named Karen, helpfully informs him is basically a grenade. It's an explosive. At which point he is told Ned earlier... To keep it safe, keep it close. So, oh shit, I have to get there now. Uh, mm -hmm. He bust out. He bust out. Meanwhile, he go. The group has won without him. They're going up the Washington Monument. They don't have access to their cell phones. It explodes after going through the X-ray, trapping them on the elevator. He goes in. He climbs to the top. He goes in. He pulls them out. He saves them all. It's a very dramatic scene, and he escapes. Uh. He find he has no clues basically, at this point, until he re realizes that Karen has been recording everything and she runs facial recognition and plates and stuff, and he does not have information. There is no information on Tomb's crew in the FBI database. However, Donald Glover's character, uh, Aaron Davis, he does exist. He's a small time criminal. So he shows up. He interrogates him. He asks him where these guys Badly. are. Badly. <laughs> He interrogates him badly. Oh, no, it's, <laughs> it's great. Really he funny. just, he activates enhanced interrogation mode, which gives him like a Batman voice. And it's just like, <laughs> I heard you before. I know what you sound like. Really? No, I'm scary. I'm a man. I'm a boy. <laughs> I'm a man. <laughs> that was great. Oh, it's fantastic. And, you know, uh, he finds out they're doing an arms deal on the uh, New York ferry. Staten Island ferry, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Staten Island, yeah. yeah. So he goes there, he disrupts the deal. Meanwhile, the feds are actually there. They were, you know, stinging on the deal. And everything goes south. Tombs comes out with a laser cutter, ends up cutting the boat in half. Spider-Man pulls it together, doesn't quite manage it. Iron Man comes out with a bunch of rocket boosters that he attaches to the side of the ship, glues it back together. And they get to talk on top of a little tower. Iron Man is pissed. Spider-Man, you fucked up, kid. If you cared, you were here. Shh, I am here, kid. Takes away the suit. And Sp Peter just kind of starts putting his life back together a little bit. He's kind of retiring small mm -hmm. time until uh, he realizes 
and he he go he goes to home. I mean, and he invites Liz. You know, he builds up the balls to do that, and he he's going back into normal high school life, up until the moment he knocks at her door, and opens it. And who opens it? Adrian Toomes. Liz is Elizabeth Toomes, daughter of the Vulture. And you have this amazing sequence where Toomes is being completely innocent and friendly, but Peter's just terrified of him because now he knows who this is, this mark he had given up on. Uh, Toomes chaperones them to the dance, but on the drive, the conversation reveals to him enough context clues that he knows with pretty good certainty that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. He lets out Liz and then offers Peter an ultimatum. You leave this alone, you show my daughter a good time, and I don't kill you. It's that simple. Peter Parker goes into the dance, realizes he can't let this go, apologizes to Liz for ruining her night, and runs off, grabs his old costume, which is cobbled together from scratch, it's actually a pretty cool design, and goes outside where he's met by the Shocker, who he has a fight with, he beats him, chases after Tombs. Now, Tombs is in a warehouse, and his plan, actually, is to intercept a plane that is flying off from Stark Tower because they've sold the building and they're relocating to a new facility. And this has a bunch of Avengers tech and artifacts. There's Thor's belt, there's Tony's Hulkbuster, there's a shit ton of arc reactors, just enough goodies to supply their arms market for, you know, a decade. And so he encounters Tombs, they have a conversation. Meanwhile, the wingsuit comes in, wrecks the entire building and drops the entire complex on top of Spider-Man. And Toomes goes off to prepare to launch. Spider-Man is trapped under the rubble. Or I should say Peter at this point. He's trapped under the rubble. He's helpless. He calls for help. And he summons the determination within himself to push the building off of himself. In this visual homage to, you know, uh, Ditko's Amazing Spider-Man number 33. It's the kind of a thing Spider-Man does a lot. You know, pushing heavy things off him. And just kind of finding the spirit within himself. And... He latches on, he hitches a ride on the vulture, they get, they tussle on the plane, and crash it into Coney Island, have a big fight, he saves Toombs' life, uh, they pick things up, uh, Happy comes to his school, picks him up, takes him up to the new facility, invites him to be an Avenger with a new suit and all that, Peter says, no, I'm good, I'm good, he goes home. Uh, there's a little bag there with his old suit. It's like, you know what, kid? Be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And we're good. And that's kind of the end of the movie. Did I miss anything? No. Nope. Well, I missed nope, a nope, couple nope. gags, but at that point, you might as well yeah. see the movie. We can even talk about those anyway, because they're great. They're like, fantastic. this movie is fantastic. Okay, I think this is sounding this is sounding like some reaction talk. So let's go to our initial decisions. Schlick, schlick. Boop, doop, boop, boop. Now we begin the initial incision. So, Annie, <laughs> how'd you like this movie? Oh my god, Silvio. Thank you for making me go to this. Because I would not have gone. <laughs> I would not have gone. I would not have gone to this if you had not texted me and been like, why are you not at this movie? Um... This and Baby Driver are probably my two favorite movies that I've seen in a very, very long time. Like, this is a really pretty strong film. 
Um, it was really funny. It was so, it was just like so sweet at times too, but not in a way that was ever like overly saccharine. It was more like, these are kids and like, this is their life and they're hilarious. They're incredibly smart, um, but they're also in danger. That was wonderful. There are some amazing performances from young actors in this movie. Um, and then there are also some really great performances from some of the older folks, like Michael Keaton. Holy shit. Um, I love that he keeps being in movies about Birdman. <laughs> I, I fucking love that. Um, he, where he's literally playing a bird villain. Uh, he was just mind-blowing in this movie. Like, it was such a good performance, and the writing for him was so, so good and so well-developed. Like, it's not as strong as it could be. Like, I feel like they could have given us a little bit more of him, but I think this is one of the stronger Marvel villains that I've seen. Like, he has a really strong motivation and story. So, but, like, how about you? So now that I've gushed, <laughs> how so about I, you? I'll take that as a yes. I, I, I love this. Like I said, I saw it twice, yeah. and I was really excited to do it. Um, so yeah, we're both on board. So Annie, I think you've given me your first highlight, Michael Keaton. Oh yeah. And I will actually give a second highlight is I really like Tom Holland in this. He was a fun, flawed character. And another thing, like I, I still love the original Spider-Man trilogy. Well, the, the first two, I didn't like three that yeah. much. Even though the Sandman is amazing. The Sandman's amazing, but the rest of it's kind of meh. But the thing is, with Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst and James Franco, it always felt like Dawson's Creek casting, where it did. it's a bunch of, it's like, 30-year-old people playing. And they were young adults. They, they they were, like, 22, but still. Like, I I, I, I feel like there's a there's definitely a youthfulness to Spider-Man that's kind of lost in some of the more modern incarnations. And Spider-Man is a teen hero. And I really like the... He felt they felt like teenage. They they were like they're like what eighteen. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because they're in high school. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. He's a, he's like a sophomore, isn't he? So he's like fifteen. Yeah. So they're supposed to be like even a little no. bit younger. And he's just snarky and funny and great time. So like, Annie, are, are we even gonna have any dislikes in this? Um, maybe like there's a couple of things that we can talk about. Um. You know, I'm not sure how to feel about Donald Glover's appearance in this film as Aaron Davis. Um, so Aaron Davis, uh, like you mentioned in your summary, is kind of like this small-time criminal. He's looking to buy weapons. At one point, he has this talk with Peter where he's, like, just at his car during that terrible interrogation scene, which was very funny. And um, he tells us, like, I'm going to give you guys, like, I'm going to tell you where this person is because I don't want people in my neighborhood to die which I thought was a very humanizing like that was a really strong moment for me for this character who I think could easily be written off as this like um you know sort of like that thug trope that we see a lot the the criminal or the gangster um so they really made him very human I'm I'm just a little pissed because there was a long time rumor that Donald Glover was going to be playing Spider-Man, that he was going to be Miles Morales. <laughs> and now he's actually playing Aaron Davis, who is Miles Morales' uncle. So, I don't know. That was weird. I mean... That was I a can, weird moment. I can dig it, but also I think at the same time, 
I, I think the moment for Donald Glover as Spider-Man has kind of passed. Like, one it thing has. they definitely did is they went for a more youthful energy with this movie. And oh, definitely. I love Donald Glover, but he's not yeah. Troy anymore. No, he's not. And I think there was a part of me that wanted to see him as that. Like, I think it was, I think this is a dislike not necessarily rooted in the movie itself, but in my own nostalgia about Donald Glover in Community. So there was that. And then also um, Pepper Potts is back. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, she's back. And I was not, I was not pleased. <laughs> okay. Uh, I want to throw up another uh, highlight here. Because I, I don't yeah. really have anything too critical about, like, I'd have to watch this a bunch more times to kind of have the familiarity to go, uh, this bit isn't as good. Because I don't think there's anything really bad in this movie. But, uh, how am I saying this right? Zendaya as MJ? Yeah. I, she yeah. was oh fantastic. My God. I, actually, that is one thing I was <laughs> yes. kind of mad about, is they were coy with her. They never named her on screen until the end to make it a bit of a reveal, which just felt kind of cheap and didn't really pay off or anything. I didn't like that. But I love her chemistry on screen. She's really funny. She's really witty. And especially in contrast with Kirsten Dunst, who I felt was just kind of... Oh, a damsel? Too, ju- yeah, just a bit of a damsel yeah. and just, you know, too old to be a proper Disney princess. Yeah. Like, she had yep. a little bit of an arc in the first movie, and then after it's just like, ah, do I love Spider-Man or do I love Spaceman? Nah. Yeah, that's the perfect summary. And... That is a very good Kirsten but, Dunst no, impersonation. She... <laughs> uh, so but, you know, good. Zendaya, she was fantastic. And actually, the entire cast of kids, the youth cast in this was really good. I don't think any of them weren't a legal adults in, for this. I think, actually, yeah. I think Tom Holland's like 21 now. I think I can miscast that. Yeah, no, no, he's, he's like 21. But yeah. they felt like kids. They were very organic. And especially, actually, the high school, the high school, because it was a very diverse environment, and it had that kind of, I don't any. I didn't go to an American high school. How did this feel? Did this feel high schooly to you? So I, this felt like high school, but like with a level of nostalgia surrounding it. So I went to a private high school, so my high school was mostly white, like 98% white. <laughs> Um, but what I thought was really cool about this movie, um, choosing to situate it in New York City, you get to focus on a New York City public high school. It's really, really diverse. There's a lot of kids there from different backgrounds. Um, and I thought it was kind of cool where, you know, like we've got this young white kid who is like, I don't know, like he's not the focus for the whole film. He isn't like sometimes the focus is on these other people around him who are shown to be really, really smart really funny. Um, Tony Revolori in particular was somebody that I wanted to point out to you guys. Um, you've probably seen Tony if you've seen Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel and also if you've seen the movie Dope. Um, Tony is playing the Flash in this movie and he's just like very funny. He's playing like he's giving us prime like funny asshole rich kid and it's just great. Um, he's Action. really good and yeah. Action Did you about- not like him? I, I don't, it's nothing about his performance. I think this is a script thing, but see if you agree with me on this one. I think okay. Flash was kind of coded as closeted gay, and I'm not sure I dig that. I, that wasn't something that I really picked up on. So, like, I don't oh, a, know a, a how couple to things. Let, 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 me, let me back up my yeah. read a little bit. Yeah. A couple things. Um, Give me examples. One, his default 
uh, insult for Peter Parker, Penis Parker. Penis Parker. Well, yep. first of all, sec, 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 and I, I actually want to call it, this has nothing to do with the film, but with the localization here, because I'm, yeah. this happens a couple times where people will try to translate jokes, and I saw this in the subtitles, um, but instead of being, uh, you know, a pun on penis, it was P, but, Parker, Parker, which is basically P, F slur, Parker. Parker. So oh. that, that, that was not cool. And they do things like that. They do things like that. That's weird. Uh, for example, in the Goosebumps movie, uh, one said, you know, it's like, uh, you know, one of the guys does a, like a, basically a really like effeminate scream. Ah! And he looks at the other guy and says, don't judge. But the subtitle said, you know, I'm not gay. You know, it. <laughs> Wait, I'm wondering if that's something that comes out in like the dubs then, because the way that it came out to me when I saw it in theaters and granted we're seeing it in two different spaces um, was that the Flash was like a rich kid, but also kind of insecure. Yeah. Uh, like well, very insecure. Yeah. He's, he seems to have a focus on Peter Parker. I don't really yeah. see him being an asshole to anyone else uh, because he is popular. He's the DJ at the party. And right. he's kind of the, and the, uh, the last point I want to point out is when they're running past uh, Peter to go to the pool, he slaps his ass. Oh, I I forgot that. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, like, I think that's a really interesting reading of that character, huh? Yeah, I don't know what to think about that. Like, I think there's some evidence towards suggesting that he is gay coded, but I I could also see it, the screenwriters intending for that to read as you know, like he's an insecure bully type. So yeah, like I I, I don't know how I re- specific because it's it's not like. I think, like, how Flash is usually interpreted, where he's a bully, where he's like, I'm an alpha male jock. Because also, he's skinny. He's on the academic decathlon team. He's right. not the jock. He's not just, I'm big and powerful. And it, like, he's popular. He's well-liked. Hmm. And just, you know, he just seems to have an obsession specifically for Peter Parker. I don't know. So, like, and it's maybe I'm reading too. maybe I'm reading too much into it, but... I, I, if that is what it is, I kind of dislike that. But I liked his performance, you know. Yeah. Uh, and actually, do we want to just go straight to deep cuts? Because we got a lot we can gush over. Let's, Let's do this. Yeah. Okay, actually, one last thing. The comedy is great. <laughs> uh, Annie, if you want to call out a couple of favorite gags, I'll call out a couple. Um, I'm going to have to go with the, um, what was, what's the name of the eyes? Is it like automatic kill or something? Um, For Spider-Man suit? Kill. Instant Kill was one of my favorites. Um, I also enjoyed Penis Parker. I thought Penis Parker was rather funny. Um, yeah, I think those are my favorite two so far. What were some that you liked? Okay, some that I liked. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. E- 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 the Instant Kill was very good. I th- I think my favorite gag is after they spend that whole time like going through the suits options, practicing with the different web shooters, doing all that, and doing this like it's like a three to five minute montage, I think, and it's really conveying a sense of time. But you know, you're in a warehouse, you're in this time dayless, nightless wasteland, which by the way, you ever live in a dorm with no windows? It's like that. It's fucking creepy. It's like, all right, yeah, how much time has passed? Thirty seven minutes. What? No, I have to get out of here now it's that that's so good and ah see i'm trying to think of a specific there's a lot of really funny moments 
that aren't necessarily gags. Oh, that all of Zendaya's moments. Oh like, my god! I yes. just draw people when they're in crisis. Like, oh my god, that was one of my favorite bits too. Oh, no, I, I have another highlight. I have another highlight. Um, Hannibal Buress is the coach. Oh God, yes. And like he, his yes. entire role is basically to put on like you know the standing role in TV with Cap- new videos recorded <laughs> with Captain America. And my favorite one is when he first introduces one for the, uh, like, the coach's, like, the Captain America body fitness challenge or whatever. He's just like, he's just like I'm pretty sure this guy's a war criminal now or whatever, but we gotta play these. <laughs> it's so good. Like, there's this he's great awesome. sense of being connected to the world without being, you know, like, absorbed by it. Yeah. You know, like, which is weird because a lot of the Marvel movies, especially because Iron Man's a big thing, happen in and around New York, but... Like this feels like a different New York. It it does. Um, that was actually one of the main comments that I have about the movie. Um, if we're not going to talk about plot or actors, this movie feels so grounded in New York City itself. Like I found that really really interesting. So in the first few films, it feels like New York City is a CGI background to me, and even in the Andrew Garfield Emma Stone ones, it felt like a background to me. With the high school setting that they chose and the way they chose to shoot Peter Parker on the subway and uh, the way they shot the skyline and kind of like Peter moving to all these different spaces, like it felt so grounded in how New York City looks and how the city moves. And like that's one of the benefits of having a really good location scout, but also like as a writer, just being like hey like we've got this amazing space that's really cool and tactile like let's really use this space so uh i just love that like i really really love the fact that this movie is so rooted in new york city yeah i actually want to say i've never been to new york but one thing this movie did do is it made me really nostalgic for chicago and there's enough superficial similarities i can kind of make that connection you know the metro looks a little bit like the l train the stops uh you know just the kind of spaces but like it felt intimate in a way that made me feel like i was there and that's i think more the connection i was making than any specific ah that's not an l train that's obviously a new york train you're an idiot like i know but it's it's the feeling of it and you know it it makes me so let's go to our deep cuts final report the cause of death yeah Uh, annie do you have any crazy reads or theories you want to open with um, this movie is a John Hughes film and not actually a superhero film. That is the deepest cut that you're going to get out of me. I'm actually not super familiar with John Hughes. Oh my god, what? How dare you? Okay. <laughs> well, wow, Silvio, you just like kind of destroyed me inside. All right, hold up. John 16 Hughes. Candles, Silvio. Oh. 16 <laughs> okay. Candles. No, okay. No, okay, no, I, I know John Hughes' movies, I just didn't know his name. Yeah, Breakfast Club, um, this was giving me Breakfast Club and Freaks and Geek vibes left and right, and I absolutely loved that in this movie. Um, I think you can do a reading of this as not necessarily a superhero type film, but really more as like a coming of age film. Um, And also, one thing that's key to John Hughes' films, because they're coming out during the 80s, there's this real feeling that high school kids are totally disconnected from adults. So adults really don't understand any of the concerns of teenagers. They don't recognize that they have this potential to be really smart. 
Um, and they also don't recognize that their concerns are legitimate. That's something that's constantly mirrored throughout the Spider-Man movie, um, Spider-Man Homecoming. Like, almost constant. Okay. Yeah. All right. Th- this is interesting, because th- here's my, my first deep cut that I want to get into. Yeah. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be kind of responding to this, because, you know, I had to read some of the critical response to this. And also, I'm on Twitter. But I caught an interesting note from Max Landis about Uncle Ben being missing from this movie and how that's kind of the heart of the Spider-Man story and how, you know, that's the flaw. And missing that kind of took away from this whole aspect of, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And I, I kind of agree to that to a point. But on my second viewing after seeing that, what's interesting actually is I think what I think has happened because there's definitely hints of some very recent trauma. Um, you know, he says, you know, you can't let this get back to May after everything that's happened. May is like, I don't, I, I'd say in a comic book universe, reasonably concerned for Peter's well-being and safety. You know, precautious if you see something like that. Work. But also it could be read as her being too cautious. Like, it seems like there's very recent trauma. I think Ben's death is recent and they're not at the point where they can talk about it. Which, and here's the thing. I think Tony Stark is kind of a proxy for Uncle Ben right now because he's trying to live up not to what Uncle Ben thought he could be, but what he thinks Tony Stark wants him to be. Yeah. Uh, Tony Stark is bad dad. That's who he is in this movie. Uh, Because, like, he's got noble intentions, but he's communicating so poorly that Peter is killing himself trying to impress him and move on in the eyes of what he thinks Tony Stark's expectations are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, like, there were a couple comments that were made during the movie, like, something had happened to Aunt May, like, you know, with what happened and stuff like that. So it seemed like they were giving nods to it, and it, yeah, um, that's an interesting comment that you got, because it felt like they were trying to do something different with the trauma that Uncle Ben's death creates in this movie than they had done before. I also, I'm, I, I, I'm kind of glad, because this is more interesting, because, like, I don't want to see Uncle Ben die. No, I I've not seen him see die. Peter like Parker chase down four another times. mugger. Yeah, it's. Um, I think that was the problem for me with a lot of the reboots was like I was really afraid that this movie was going to be another origin story, and I think <laughs> I should have mentioned that before because I didn't realize until now that that was actually my big fear, because I think that's been the problem with the Spider-Man movies. There is more to Spider-Man than just the origin story itself. Um, Absolutely. yeah. But yeah, no, because I think the, the the main thing that I think is interesting to me is, is kind of what drives the plot is both actors in this case, you know, Tony Stark and Peter Parker, are acting in good faith, but they're not communicating each other. They both have good intentions, and if they were explicit and communicative, they would not have this problem. Because... Um, Peter Parker relays information to Tony Stark and to Happy that there's these guys that are distributing weapons, and he's giving these tips to the FBI, but he doesn't say he's doing it. He doesn't tell Peter. So Peter feels like he's doing nothing. He's kind of screaming into the void, which is why he goes to this weapons deal. Because if he, if he hadn't been there, they would have caught basically everyone but Toomes. You know, that would have been the entire crew. That would have sunk the operation. But no, because Peter was there, there was this big public fight, people got put in danger and so on. So I think Peter's looking for a father figure, but not 
dealing with his emotional needs and not confronting them explicitly. Whereas Tony's, he's looking to kind of, like he wants Peter to be a good kid. Like he's, there's a line that I think is very important here is, you know, I wanted to be like you. And he's like, no, no, I was trying to be like you. And I thought I wanted you to be better. So there's, and there's, you know, there's also some symbolic, like, passing of the torch. And stuff. You know, we don't know how long um, Robert Downey Jr. is going to be he's doing this. He's going to be out after he's, the next film, I'm pretty for no, sure. No, he, he, he's, yeah. Well, he's also the highest paid, so he might come back for a few more just for the money. Yeah. But, you know, it's, he he's aging out of the role, and there's this kind of passing on the torch. So I think that's actually an important dynamic that... I haven't seen much discussion on it. Really. I haven't either, which I think is super interesting because one of Tony Stark's major plot points is his relationship with his father, which is this really damaged and broken relationship that essentially leaves Tony um, unable to have normal s- social interactions without sort of like making a joke to kind of like protect himself. And that was something that you also see in this movie where like I think Tony Stark sees a lot of himself in the character of Spider-Man. And so that's why he is saying like, no, I want you to be better, better than me. Um, in part because of that, which was like, Hmm, that's, that's interesting. But I totally agree with what you're saying though. The lack of communication is really what kind of leads to this bad father, um, and uncommunicative son dynamic that, um, creates a lot of the tension in the film, which, Honestly, that made a really good story for me. Like, I, I thought that was a really good plot line. I'm kind of sad that there are not more macho heroes because this is a great time to shout toxic masculinity. But it's it's not. It's just bad emotional hangups. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, another thing. Annie, I wanted to ask you specifically, because we did talk about diversity yeah. a little bit and things we liked, but, like, how do you feel about, like, the racial politics of this movie? That's kind of Oh weird. god. Okay, so yeah. Uh so I just saw this movie on Thursday and I've been thinking about this basically the whole time. And while I was in the theaters too, I was really impressed with the casting and the choice to cast young actors of color in these roles. Like that to me was like thank you for being willing to cast people because it it's so ridiculously hard for black brown and latino people to get roles and asian folks too. My gosh. Um, so, Peter... That is a very handsome principal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, super <laughs> handsome. Um, and also, um, his best friend, Ned. Like, Ned is Filipino, um, or the actor who plays him is Filipino. Tony Revolori is Guatemalan. Um, Zendaya and the young woman who plays Liz, whose name I have not heard before. She was... Uh, that... Really kind of sweet. That would be... Yes. Uh, Laura Harrier. Okay. I actually really liked the character of Liz, and I didn't think I was going to, because she's kind of like this this girl crush. She's a popular girl, too. Because she's a black woman, I was a little afraid they were going to go with, uh, but she's really kind of a mean, popular girl, and then it becomes this really weird thing. That did not happen. She was super nice the whole time, and I think just kind of like trying to negotiate high school. And, you know, um, granted, I'm sure that people could critique this film for choosing, um, you know, like some lighter complexioned people, like some lighter skinned people, certainly. I was just happy to see people getting roles. Um, I was also, I think the dynamic with some of the white 
characters is really interesting because we seem to have white characters have actual agency in the plot but the characters of color um, are kind of like the supporting cast which I don't fully know how I feel about did you pick up on that at all I they, they did a fantastic job having this really diverse organic feeling cast but I think they and I don't want to say too much diversity but I think like that that's almost what I'm trying to say though is like there's there's there there's too few there's few enough there's few enough white actors in this that it except I think for like the shop teacher you know who has this great gag he's like they're messing around with alien artifacts and he just hears a noise keep your hands away from the blades you know aside from that guy I think if you are a white person in this film you are a player or an actor there there are no kind of background invisible whites which is yeah. kind of interesting i i i, I and i still don't think that's a deliberate message i think that's just kind of an accident of trying to create this diverse cast but it's just something that i think is kind of an unfortunate implication yeah because you kind of need people in the background to be like hey you know like they're just sort of like these background people who are also white that way it's not just people of color being in the background which and again, I don't think that's intentional. They do also have Martin Starr in this movie um, as the history teacher, and Zendaya gives him a real zinger about the Washington Monument at one point, which I was really oh, right, enjoying. Oh, right, right. I forgot about yeah. him. Yeah. I, I actually completely forgot about him. So yeah, no, it, it's, not, it's not everything. It's just like, of the major players, you know, you have more white people. When, when you create this fantastically diverse background cast and you haven't really put i think that same amount of diversity into the main cast it kind of reflects poorly yeah it just creates now, a dynamic between agency and uh supporting cast yeah what yeah now one thing i do want to say and this is not part of the film this is just meta enjoyment but i love that both peter parker's love interest yeah and his implicit future love interest are both black women. Uh, yes. Or biracial. Yeah. Black. Because I cannot wait for the fucking Daily Stormer, Alt-Reich, you know, Peter Parker is a race traitor. Yeah, yeah the hashtag, be... like, um, white genocide stuff to come back, of course. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to drink those tears. Blood, <laughs> just blood, blood. Thank you. get delicious. me a mug. Now, I will also say, I do think some of this does play into the film a little bit, because here's the, here's the thing. Um, I do think it actually did help mask the sucker punch of Toombs being her father. Yes, because, because people didn't expect it. <laughs> yeah, because people didn't expect it. They, yeah, uh, she's show, she's. I think Liz is coded as black. I don't think she's really coded as biracial, at least visually. So she has a black mother who shows up to like a PTA or something. Oh no, she shows up to the Washington Monument and you know hugs her after the trauma. So you. We are left to assume that, oh, she is a child of a black mother, uh, you know, she must have black parents on both sides. And that kind of disguises it. And, you know, Zendaya doesn't, she's just kind of ambiguously biracial, but, you know, just, I, I feel like it hid that punch. And I'm really, because that is such a good punch. I think it is, because um, it really, that knows what the audience's perceptions of black children are and i think it plays upon how people don't may not recognize still that there are a lot more multiracial families now um 
and they're, I mean, that's just such a great reveal and a great moment and such an interesting choice. Um, well, and I also, I think, like, I'm sure people could do some sort of analysis with this movie about, like, class, uh, like, socioeconomic class, because um, Liz, both Liz and um, a little bit less so Zendaya's character, MJ, Liz codes as upper middle class. And uh, so that was really interesting to see that because not only do we have the portrayal of a, a young black woman who is a love interest, she's also upper middle class, she's multiracial. So there's a lot of representational boundaries that are being, you know, like kind of pushed um, in there. I mean, if she was a lower class black woman, I, I'm not sure if they would have been able to get that through at the studio. So there are questions there too about representation um, that you kind of need to ask, but for the most part, this film is actually doing a pretty good job of saying like, hey, you know what? People are going out and seeing movies now, and they would like to see people who look like them in movies. And yeah. I think that's a really cool thing. I, at this point, I'm just fucking with people. But yeah. I, I, I did have a funny thought. Yeah. Is you could actually make the argument that on behalf of Adrian Toomes... The writers are virtue signaling for him with his love of black women. <laughs> just to throw the page in there and make people mad. Just weirdly, I hadn't thought it was funny. Yeah, I know. But at the same time, though, he's a fictional character. He can't affect goodness because what is on screen is what exists for him. Right. Well, and I also think that um, he's so he codes in two different ways during this movie which is why i think talking about class is so interesting in the beginning sequence in the movie like you've got this working man proletariat narrative which um like that was really interesting like he's working with his hands he's also being like no like you got to use this so this is somebody who's a skilled manual laborer which manual labor codes as being lower class and then so that's another one of the ways in which that reveal with michael keaton is interesting because Michael Keaton didn't code as middle class for the first part of this movie. He coded as lower class, um, as working class. And so I thought that was actually one of the other cool things about the reveal. Well, that's the other thing, though, is he... And actually, no, there is point, because there is a vision. Because it does follow in the story, is at the beginning, he's kind of put everything into this kind of startup. Yeah. And at the end, he's made all this money from being an arms trafficker and right. all that. And the thing is, you never reveal his home life. He's just, you know, if you reveal that work is going good, but he spends all his time on screen that you can see in these warehouses with these crews and trucks and in garages. Um, but also, we didn't get to this in the highlights, but I do want to talk about how much I love the Vulture design. Yeah, let's talk about that because you were super interested in that. So what is it exactly that you like about the Vulture design? Because I also like it, but I don't know how to verbalize why. Okay, well, first of all, I want to talk about the original Vulture design, which is just, you know, what it's is... a man in a green bodysuit with a fluffy collar, and he's bald. Oh, go ahead, Google it. It's a riot. He basically looks like the Vulture from the Looney Tunes, but as a man. You know, the dog, you know, <laughs> you know, I can't. Oh, and he has you a weird exactly nose. Yeah, he's got this, like, crooked nose, no. too. Like, what is happening? And he's no. also green? No, it's... Why? <laughs> okay. Be because four-color printing. Anyways, <laughs> uh, moving on. Um, so, but the thing is, when he comes down, he is terrifying. First of all, he swoops out of the sky. He's completely black, essentially, except yeah. for these two glowing green eyes. So he's hard to see. And here's some 
theory of visual design for you here. We as human beings are trained to recognize ourselves. We see figures everywhere. Like you ever just stare at like a, a patterned wall and see, you know, faces everywhere? You see faces yeah, in cars and all that? Definitely. Yeah. That's something that we like to do. And the more we can recognize a face as human, the more we can recognize its motivations and what it's thinking, hmm. the more we like it. So when you have a face that has just eyes, it's creepy. Mm, like Darth Vader. So yeah, exactly. So when you contrast the original Vulture design, which is a completely exposed head, with this kind of insectoid, futuristic flight helmet, and these giant wings, he feels like a Dark Souls boss. Like he really evokes to me the Man Eaters from Demon Souls. Yeah. And he comes out of no, he comes out of nowhere. Yeah. He picks you up off the ground, and he moves so quickly and with such force and kineticism. I love it. And I also really like that they're not literal flapping wings. Oh my god, that would have been awful. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I liked about the wings is that um, <laughs> once they're spread out, and we have this kind of like idea that he's this working man, right? He's supposedly doing good things for the people. But he's actually lying to his wife, and he kills his own people, and he expects, like, conformity. He kind of has a little bit of a fascist feel when you look at the wings fully spread, um, which I thought was kind of, I don't know, that was just little kind bit, of A little cool. bit of Iron Eagle there? Yeah, a little bit. It was just kind of, like, cool and interesting to look at visually, but uh, yeah, I, I, right. I do. Yeah, I do want to call out one more thing, though is I love how they also function as arms. The way it, like, grabs onto the plane and rips and pulls himself towards it. So yeah. good. So, so good. Yeah. Anyways, I do want to talk about the whole proletariat thing because that's yep. one thing I really like about this is Toombs is a working-class villain. Yep. To a, de to a degree. He's kind of made it, and he's kind of joined the he's bootstrapped. bourgeois. Yeah. 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 But at the same time, he is... He's not... The bourgeois. He's the petit bourgeois. Yeah. He's not. He's made it for himself and his family. But right. He's not a multi. Actually, he probably is with that house. He's probably a multimillionaire, but and in New York. But yeah. he's not like he's on a completely different level than you know the super capitalist like you know Iron Man and Tony Stark, and he does have a point in the speech that he makes to Peter Parker is those guys up there. They, they don't get it. They're not like you and me. They didn't come from where we came from. Yeah. They just fuck around and leave us to clean up the pieces. And then they clean up the pieces for money. You know, they just, yeah. the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And that's something that Peter Parker struggles with and is not resolved in this movie. Uh, particularly, Adrian Toomes is not an evil man. He is flawed and he perhaps does evil things. But in particular, when he does kill one of his underlings, it's it's kind. Of, it, I I don't think that scene is quite handled properly with the amount, right amount of gravitas. It's supposed to be kind of a funny moment, where he's because he explicitly says, "Oh, I thought that was the anti gravity gun." Mm -hmm. Like I feel like the implication is that he just wanted to teach him a lesson. Yeah. And so rather than having this kind of serious reaction, I feel like it's just kind of left to hang. You know? Well, I feel like the humor is used to really neutralize what that act does, right? So, like, if you read Adrian Toomes' character through a Marxist lens, Adrian Toomes is a working-class man who, like you said, has worked his way up the ladder, right? He has been a producer. 
but that was taken away from him by members of the consuming class, the like Tony Stark as bourgeoisie. So Toombs has to find another way to operate within the capitalist market, and really the only way to do that is to do scrap work. Well, the problem is that Adrian Toombs actually, um, while he's taking care of people, and that's why he says he does this, he's actually very greedy. So, like, going back for things, overloading his flight suit, that stuff, um, like, he's actually kind of greedy, and then he also kills a member of his group, so he expects conformity from his group. Um, so he's actually become a labor boss instead of, like, a proletariat worker who is working with his people. So he then ends up enacting capitalist oppression within his own group. I I don't know. I think that's part of what... um, (laughs) He fails to perform socialism. Like, that's part of his narrative. And that was just, Right, I gotta build up my lefty credentials now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was just, like... uh, That was super fascinating. Like, he moves at times from being a producer to being a consumer which is a marker of being in the bourgeoisie and like that is where we get these failings I was like holy crap like is there a socialist screenwriter somewhere in here who was like hmm we're gonna let's whip out Das Kapital and see how we can get um you know a little bit of that in here (laughs) that was that was one of those things where I was watching it and I was like this is interesting it's fascinating, right? And we've had all these working man narratives in American politics in the past year, and so I kind of think it fits yeah. in with that too. But there's also you gotta consider though um, how how this reflects back on Peter Parker because one thing that is mentioned specifically, and I like this, is that the Spider-Man suit is a multi-million dollar suit. Yep. And he's only really kind of like you know this people's. Uh, superhero, this the you know, actually here. local superhero. Right. <laughs> okay, he is wearing red. Hold up, um, <laughs> he's wearing red. Ah. No, but but um, he only is that in the times when he's kind of had his trappings taken away from. Him. He's his kind of aspirations is to kind of move away from that, and he's part of that is realizing that he can't that he can't right now, and that maybe it's not what he wants. He's re-examining that. Now, I also. I want to talk about this movie in the context of being a comic adaptation, which it isn't, but yeah. it being a comic property, rather. Right. And the kind of illusions it makes. Because what's interesting here is this seems to have reflections on a couple of comics. Uh, like I said, Amazing Spider-Man number 33, the whole mm. lifting heavy things thing. Yeah. And by the way, that scene is amazing. He's crying, he's screaming, he's scared and helpless. And he's a more vulnerable hero than a lot of heroes are i think on screen and i think that's why this resonates and i think why the character is so endearing you know superman fears for others uh batman weaponizes his own fear spider-man is kind of raw to it you know yeah well and also if you look at the other heroes in the mcu who are like vulnerable and more human like i think this character is even more vulnerable and human than ant-man and, like, Ant-Man is pretty human. So, yeah. like, that was cool. Because, I mean, that's the thing. I think that's part of the problem with Spider-Man, I think, in the modern times as a comic character, is Spider-Man has aged out. Yeah. Like, even with the slowed down comic aging, I think right now Peter Parker's, like, 30 and he owns his own science lab. Like, he's gotten away from being scrappy. 
I think that's one thing that was fantastic about this movie is he felt scrappy again. He made mistakes. He fucked up. He lost things. He was at risk. And here's another thing that's interesting, actually. I don't think he had a spider sense in this movie. No, he didn't. Actually, didn't Ned ask him at one point, so, like, do you have spider senses? And he's like, not really. I, I, I don't like that know. Was a line. I don't remember that line. I saw it twice. I don't I think so. I think that was a line, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't, know. I don't know. He asked him if he laid eggs. He asked a lot of dumb questions. He did. But here's the thing. He's shown, to have, he's shown to have very good reaction times. Yeah. And, you know, good senses. But I don't feel like he ever was prescient to incoming danger. And this is one thing I actually think is interesting is I don't think the spider sense is appropriate for movies. Because the spider sense works very well in a comic because it says, oh, this is what's happening. This is the danger that's coming. We've explained the threat level. Now we get to do this impossible trick to get out of it. That's cool because it doesn't interrupt the flow. But when you look at like the original Spider-Man movie, 2002, where it just slows down the action and it kind of makes it feel like Spider-Man's invincible. You know, you've got that scene where he, uh, Mary Jane trips and he catches all the stuff on the plate, on the platter. And it's just like, it, it really reduces this idea that Spider-Man is under the... And Spider-Man takes some licks in this. Holy shit. He gets a bus thrown on him. Yeah. He takes a real beating, which is also kind of disturbing because Tom Holland does definitely read as teenager to me. So, like, this was like watching a bunch of little kids get beat up. Like, that was kind of... That was kind of rough. He kind of addressed, you know, uh, Tony Stark couldn't stand to put him in danger like this. He He was regretting his options. It felt like... He had been short-sighted that he had reached too far. Right. And so on. Yeah. Now, um, what I want to get back to, though, is what's interesting, I think, in this... Uh, an interesting allusion is to Civil War. And mm. this is kind of getting away from the movie, but I want to talk about Civil War. Sure. Mostly because I'm still mad about it. Uh-huh. But uh, there's a throwaway line that I think does very well with this. Is, um, if Cap wanted to lay you out, he, he would. would have. Yeah. And... That calls back to one of the early fights in the original Civil War uh, comic, which I think was not handled that well. I think nope. in the end did more damage than it did. But the opening phases of it were really cool. And there's this amazing scene where Spider-Man comes in and he gets in a fight with Captain America. It's his first fight with him. And there's this great narration of, you know, I've studied his moves. I've watched tapes. I've seen it a hundred times. I know all his moves. But then Captain America just punches. And then... One of the things he says is he realizes, but I didn't understand. There are no moves. It's one motion. And Cap just decks him in the face. It's great. And mm. the reason I thought of this in particular is the suit that we see at the end of the movie, that feels like an allusion to the Iron Spider. It's a suit created for Spider-Man in Civil War to soup him up and make him ready to fight on Tony Stark's behalf, to kind of make him an agent of Tony. And... There's some visual design cues, the shinier eyes, the smooth, like, it's not a direct reference because, you know, the Iron Spider is yellow and gold. But there's that kind of crisp, not quite matte, not quite shiny material to it. And that feels symbolically like it's the devil's bargain. It's the, to become a techno hero, to become... Faust. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of Faustian, but I think that is a deliberate reference. And right. it's interesting how Marvel is learning from their mistakes with uh, this. Because, let's face it, we we were that close in the, like, Peter Parker movie. Sorry, in the um, 
name, name, name. Ah, Spider-Man uh, movies? Maguire. Maguire. No, in, in the Tobey Maguire movies? Yeah, we were that close. We were that close to getting to one more day, and no one wants that. Oh, uh, yep. <laughs> yeah, for those not in the know, one more day is the comic the comic event where uh, Aunt May gets shot, and then Peter Parker does a deal with the devil to erase his marriage to save her, but also it undoes... Uh, I forget her name, but Mayday Parker, his daughter, who's Spider-Man in the future, and it's really fucking dumb. Yeah. It's really, really dumb. Yeah, I wonder then if they're going to go with that storyline for the next movie. Not not this specific <laughs> story. Sorry, not this specific story. That was my brain farting. Um, no, with what you were saying about the suit, like I wonder if that's what the storyline is going to be for the next movie is if Spider-Man is kind of like this um, Iron Man by proxy, essentially. Because we know that Robert Downey Jr. has come out and said that he's interested in transitioning out of the Marvel Universe as like a major character right so like that would make the most sense they've gotten him to the point where that is possible right you know what fascinates me i'm fascinated to see how tom holland plays out as spider-man because he's going to age in real time we're not going to have comics time with the marvel universe and that's kind of fascinating yeah i wonder how long they can do this or whether they're going to be like fine with him doing that fine with him just yeah no aging the, the the sequel i think is within two years easy okay huh but after that like he's gonna he's he's gonna age and he's gonna become more proficient i think he can probably do the young thing for like another five maybe seven years maybe i mean you never know like who is the guy who played frodo <laughs> Oh, Elijah Wood? Yeah, maybe he'll just have, like, an Elijah Wood life <laughs> where he does not age. I'm sorry. Elijah I, Wood, we want I, to I, know I, what you were drinking to stay youthful. Please tell us. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now I'm picturing Elijah Wood as Spider-Man, and it's the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> it is the greatest. But, like, since the 1950s when Spider-Man first came out, and Elijah Wood's been Spider-Man this whole time. Yeah, I want to believe. <laughs> I think we got some pretty good deep cuts and oh man I just really enjoyed this movie yeah no I could keep going oh I also want to call out they did a they did a split mask panel I love that I love that they did that that was delightful and you said that was a specific reference because I'm not as familiar with the Spider-Man comics as others what was that reference to um that's a thing that they did very often where you'd have he would be in, like, his civilian attire, and then half his mask would show up for a panel to, like, hint at the spider sense, or that he's thinking in Spider-Man terms, I think. Okay. So it would just cover half his face. So they reflected that in the water, and that's, like, a specific illusion, more so than, I think, the half-torn-off face that you have with, like, the Tobey Maguire movies. That feels more like a Terminator thing. Yeah. I also... Here's the other thing I really liked, and... Again, like, we love this movie, so there's a lot that's just gonna... Oh, also this. Oh, also this. Oh, also this. But <laughs> I love that they made allusions to the Tobey Maguire movies as well. Uh, particularly the kind of crucifixion imagery that he has a lot, where he's, like, got webs on either side and he's pulling them together. Yeah. But he does that 
on the ferry and he fails. I think that's an important yeah, thing to say. Yeah, that was really he's good. A, he choice. is powerful. He is agile. He has agency. But he is not superhuman in the classical sense of the word. Yeah. Yeah, that 98% yeah, success rate was great. I think that was a really good yeah. choice for them. Yeah. I'm excited to see where they go next with this. Ugh, same. Um, this is going to be a really interesting time for Marvel. Yeah. I'm also really curious how this is going to shake out legally with the Sony Marvel thing. Yeah. Oh, I have. Did they buy it? I thought they bought it. I thought they bought no, it. No, 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 no. This was a Sony movie made with help slash oversight slash production by the Marvel Studios. I don't fully understand it. It's going to be weird and messy, but Sony what? still owns it. Well, that is very confusing for me. But this was a Marvel Studios movie. It's 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 weird. Yeah, that's super weird. Whatever, Anyways. I still liked it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I do want to call one last thing, and I think this will play us out. But yeah. how excited were you when you heard the Spider-Man theme over the Marvel logo? Okay. I... Going into this movie again, I did not know how to feel. And then all of a sudden, that theme started playing. And I was like, fuck yes, this movie's going to be fucking awesome. Spider-Man, Spider-Man. It was great. And the title sequence at the end was great, too. Like, the title sequence at the end. Uh, The Blitzkrieg Bob? Oh, my gosh, you guys. Can we we talk about the ending credits? First of all, first of all, post-credits. The first one is great. Because, you know, they're kind of setting up their own Sinister Six. And that's a fun one. I think actually Matt Matt Gargan looks great with that little kind of like chemical scar he's got above his eye. He does. He's kind of yeah. intimidating. I I'm, I'm liking that. I'm excited to see where they go with him. Yeah. But also, after <laughs> Annie, do you want to describe the after after credit? No, because I didn't stay for it. <laughs> I didn't see it. Okay, <laughs> that was wise because it was a Captain America educational video where he says, "Patience. Sometimes we feel like we waited for nothing at all, but that's okay." And he's basically just, the, it's just ragging on the audience and saying, you guys have been trained to sit here like idiots. It's kind of great. <laughs> I need to look that up. I, I don't know how I uh, feel about that. <laughs> Captain America. Oh, man. Hey! Oh! Oh. I wish there was more of a soundtrack, though. I will say that. Because I love the Blitzkrieg bop. You know, bit of Ramones in there. I felt like there was definitely room for a little bit more of that. Um, the first time that Tom Holland sees Liz for us in the movie, I kind of wish that Alicia Keys' You Don't Know My Name had played. <laughs> I just thought it would have been really cute and funny. Um, but at least, you know, we got that end title sequence. Like, this was a really solidly done movie. Um, and we hope that you guys go out and check out Spider-Man Homecoming. This was a fun time for us. I am not somebody who likes Spider-Man and all of a sudden I love this movie. So for those of you who don't like Spider-Man, hey, there's something in it for all of us, apparently. Um, See it, yeah. like it, love it, comment, yeah. subscribe, rate yeah. us, send us emails. Yeah. You know, please, just, we're howling into the void here, it's very... Talk active. to us on Twitter, please all all three of our followers. Exists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two of which are us. Two of which are us. We follow ourselves, because we're creeps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. I've been Silvio Emery. You can catch me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. And I've been Annie Neller, and you guys can catch me on Instagram at, at @lightsandmusic. Feel free to email us at ontheslab at gmail.com. We'll put that in the show notes. And, uh, you know, 
Facebook page, Twitter, whatever. Just you guys have a good time. Bye-bye. Yeah. See ya.